The Indie Insider Podcast is presented by Blackshell Media, a publishing and marketing firm working to help independent video game developers reach massive audiences, publish financially successful titles, and turn game development into a career. The company also offers educational resources for aspiring and experienced developers alike, which is why we get to bring this show to you every week. For more on Blackshell Media, visit blackshellmedia.com. Welcome to Indie Insider Presents, The Road to Play NYC, a limited Indie Insider series. I'm your guide, Logan Schultz, and for the next three weeks, we're going to be talking with indie developers, professionals, and companies who will all be attending Play NYC, New York City's first dedicated gaming convention. This is week one, and we'll be talking with mobile devs, companies dedicated to outdoor and community play, established companies, new studios, and everything in between. The convention is only three weeks away, so join me as we meet new professionals, discuss everything about video games and the indie industry, and make our way on the road to Play NYC. Stay tuned. If you're a regular fan of the show, you may remember Dan Butchko from just a few weeks back. Dan is the CEO of Playcrafting, the education company producing Play NYC. Well, after he and I spoke, I had an idea. Why not partner up and share the stories and insight of some of the amazing studios and developers heading to their upcoming gaming convention on this show? Thus, the Road to Play NYC series was born. But Dan can tell you way more about Playcrafting and Play NYC than I can, and thankfully he's agreed to come back on the show again and give us the details. Dan, welcome back to the show. How's it going, man? It's going well. We're getting close to Play NYC and we're super excited about it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you for coming back on the show and chatting with me. I know you were here just a couple of weeks ago, but you and I since have started this Road to Play NYC series that we're doing on the show, and I, I, I had to have you back to talk about the convention. And, you know, we're closer to it now. There's got to be, you know, new things to share. Yeah, totally. I can't believe the amount of momentum that has come through, especially in the last month before this event. And uh, it's just beyond our wildest dreams what this is, event is turning into and we're so excited for how this is really going to set it up for the years to come too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I I really like that you're looking so far down the road, so forward thinking about, you know, this this isn't just a one-off for you. I think you guys would probably like to make this a regular thing if if this year ends up being successful. Absolutely. Well, tell people who maybe aren't familiar about Playcrafting and then of course about Play NYC. Sure. So Playcrafting uh, we've been around for about three years now. Really started out uh, as a less formal community in New York. Uh, and then we came in and really just kind of worked with local developers and built the organization of Playcrafting around that community that was already in place. So uh, we started out in New York, like I said, and then we're now also in San Francisco and Boston doing some things, just getting started out in uh, LA and Seattle as well. Uh, our primary mission is to get as many people making games as possible. So uh, we provide classes and courses on how to make games, how to sell games, how to um, create assets on the audio and the art side for games, all different aspects of games as a, an art and a business. Uh, all of our educational offerings are in person. So a lot of the folks that come through our way have tried learning on their own behind a screen and just needed that in-person connection. So we have a lot of partners in these different cities that we work with, like Google and Microsoft, 
that, uh, that we work with that host us and uh, we contract local developers to act as those instructors. So people are learning how to make games and how to be successful in games from people that are actually making them and releasing them uh, and doing so uh, time-wise and financially in a way that is a lot more affordable and approachable. Uh, and on top of that, we also do a number of our own local and large-scale events that are completely open to developers of all shapes and sizes, regardless of whether you've taught or learned through playcrafting. And those have just taken off in the past several years, especially in New York. And that's where Play NYC came from. And now we're launching New York's first dedicated video game convention. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, Play NYC, this convention you're putting on. You're saying it's the very first dedicated gaming convention in New York City. And it's right in the heart of Manhattan. I mean, this sounds like it's going to be huge. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of events that do happen in New York. Uh, we've been doing a number of events for years now as well. Uh, we have a lot of organizations and communities and partners that we work with that have their own events. Uh, but we realize New York needs its own dedicated games convention, not games as part of something that's uh, larger and more pop culture focused, not just a certain segment of games, not something that's just for developers, something that is for players, something that is for developers, something that is for everybody that is making games, that is playing games, something that is really just acting as a way to help elevate uh, local developers in New York, help put New York on the map for its game developers, and be a way to have folks from, uh, from far away uh, across the US and internationally uh, really use New York as a, as a meeting place for uh, interacting with press, uh, developers, uh, gamers, etc. So that's where Play NYC was born of, and uh, we can't, we couldn't be more excited about it. We're filling up Terminal Five, this landmark, really cool concert venue. Uh, it's an entire building in Manhattan. Uh, we're calling it New York's most playable building because we are literally transforming this space into a games carnival, essentially. So um, there's three floors of games. We have game kiosks. So those are monitors and games on, uh, on poles throughout the venue. There are uh, full-on booths. There's uh, what we're calling game graffiti. That's, uh, that's commissioned installations from local independent developers that are creating experiences for the space. So those are like projections and uh, screens and different just like interactive toys essentially that are gonna be in those in-between spaces. Uh, there's a VR lounge going on. Um, the rooftop is gonna be full of uh, live games from Come Out and Play, which is this great organization in New York. Um, on top of that, we have a, a full stage setup with some of New York's biggest Twitch streamers where we're streaming all weekend long to people all over the world, uh, as well as using it as a platform for the developers at the show to really get the word out about uh, their own projects that they have there. Um, it's just going to be a really fun weekend. Uh, we wanted to make sure that you know it's in a space that is just very New York feeling. So not we didn't want people to walk in there and say, hey, this is just PAX, or hey, this is just GDC in a different city. Uh, we wanted to really build something and use that, seize this opportunity uh, in building something brand new to build the kind of games convention that developers and players want to be at, especially in the heart of Manhattan. 
this sounds like it's going to be extremely impressive, uh, and I imagine that it's just going to be a ton of work, and, and we're only three weeks away from it, so I'm sure you're just going crazy. So I'm actually going to let you go for now. You can go back, get some things done, but you are <laughs> going to come back uh, for next week's episode and the week after that. That's going to be the Monday right before the convention, and I know you're going to bring some new things to me, some announcements, and, and we're going to dive deep into Play NYC and, and what people can expect. Definitely. I, I can't wait to highlight some of the amazing developers that are going to be a part of this. Uh, talk about some of the speakers that are going to be there for our talks and panels. Um, it's, it's coming up and uh, I, I'm looking forward to the weeks ahead. Awesome, Dan. Well, go do some great work. I will see you next week. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, my name is Nicholas Fortuno, and I'm a, I've been a game designer and interactive narrative designer for about 20 years now. I co-founded and I'm the CEO of a company called Playmatics, where we work on what we call innovative game design, which is kind of making games about non-game things for people who don't play games, is kind of how we think about it. Games for education, games for journalism, games for healthcare, games for you know, different kinds of entertainment brands, uh, new genres of games. Uh, I'm a co-founder of Come Out and Play, and we've done that now for about 12 years. And I also teach game design and interactive narrative design at a number of institutions, including Columbia University and Parsons. Our first guest is, as he said, Nick Fortuno of both Playmatics and Come Out and Play. And he really is an impressive guy. He's adamant that his superhero origin story is pretty standard. I, I, I have the story that like the sort of OG game designers have, right? That, that you didn't study games, you didn't think games were a career, you just kind of did it in your spare time. In my case, that was live action role playing. And, and I got found by independent game designers in New York, notably, you know, most specifically Eric Zimmerman, who now is at the um, NYU Game Center. And he brought me onto Game Lab based on some hobby work I did. Um, and, you know, that really changed my life. But he's a fascinating artist with some interesting thoughts on the video game industry. I think games as a medium are so young and we're in such a good moment in games that you really can innovate in a lot of ways. Uh, game designer Zach Gage, who was a, a former student of mine, um, once said to me that I thought was one of the most intelligent things I've ever heard. If you, if you want to innovate in games, just throw a rock in a random direction because it's all, it's all open space. And that as an artist got me really excited because I realized that, oh, I can just create new things all the time. You said that we're in a really good moment in games and, and there's so much room for innovation. Tell me a little bit about uh, what that means for your work. Yeah, so, well, well, it's interesting. Like, um, part of the idea is that I think as a medium of expression, games have been a little bit odd because they became commercially successful very quickly relative to their start in a modern sense. Uh, a lot of other media, when they grew up, either grew up in a non, you know, a non-capitalistic, modern capitalistic setting, right? So they, you didn't have the 
the kind of machinery of marketing and the machinery of distribution that we have today, or they were niche for a long time. Like the technologies right. just sort of sat in a closet for a while while people figured them out, and they didn't become a pop form until you know a generation after their their creation. You can't even argue that with games. Even if you go back to Space War, it's like, like by the time we were in the early 80s, games were an industry and an industry that was making money and really trying to distribute itself. And so as a, an expressive medium, it never quite, it didn't have the, the same kind of space that other media had to like stumble around and figure themselves out and experiment. And so I think as generations are getting older with games, we're going through a natural cycle of, of like realizing that games are expressive and that we can use games to express these truths that we always want to express in forms, right? So that you have generations of people who grew up watching films who decide they want to make films and they want films to tell their stories. And then you see this wave of films that tell those stories. And that's, you know, modern media phenomenon. I think that like you can see that form replicate itself over and over again in, in modern media. But games were kind of weird because they were already really successful. So like these genres had gotten kind of stamped into the ground before, you know, people started thinking like, well, what would it be like to tell my story in a game? Or what would it be like to express this political opinion or make this argument in a game? Like we didn't have the same space to experiment. So I think what we're having now is that you have a generation of people who grew up for whom like a JRPG is a story. Like that's what they understand a story to be and that they think strongly about that. We're starting to see manifestations and culture of that. So Scott Pilgrim is a really interesting manifestation of that Mm -hmm. where it's a comic book that's told through the language of games in a very literal sense. And I, 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 it's a, you know, in a way it's kind of, and I love Scott Pilgrim, right? And it's kind of a gimmick in the sense that it's like, it's a go-to kind of trope that he's using over and over again. But I think it's not like cheap. He's, it's, it's how he thinks about the world. Right, it's the lens through which he sees the world, and I think you're seeing that similarly in the indie game community. Is a lot of people are trying to make games about identity, about life experience, about issues that are important to them, about aesthetic truths. And the, and the interesting thing about aesthetic truths, truths is that could be the kind of broader aesthetic truths we think of, or the aesthetic truths that are specific to games, like very gameplay specific formalist truths. And so that that's I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about innovation is that we're in a space now where people are like, oh. I've grown up with games. I kind of know how games work. I like games, and I think in terms of games. Like that's like my cult, the cultural form I lean on. And now I want to figure out ways that games can do things I haven't seen them do that are important to me as an artist. And so then you start seeing this 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 wild experimentation that pushes the boundaries of what games are, and that asks questions about what we mean by interactivity and what we mean by players, and and what we can do with like simple forms. Um, and how those things could build up into interesting, um, powerful experiences for us. And I think we're right in the crucible right now of all that stuff cooking, right? Like, we don't actually know what these forms are going to be or how they're going to do. And, and I think that some of the more recent titles that have come out that have been very, very strong but have underperformed commercially, you know, I'm thinking of, like, Never Alone and Edith Finch, are sort of like, the, these are the stabs that we're trying to make to figure this out. And that has a lot of... Um, limbs on it, right? Like there's the there's the pure art side and storytelling side, and those are different, obviously. But like those spaces of like, I just want to make an interesting expression in my medium, thinking about my medium. But then there's also asking the question of like, how does a game function as a documentary? How does a game function as a political argument? How can a game help people um, learn things about their health, or, or or learn things in education, or be more civically engaged? Like those are, I, I mean, there's all this experimentation going on in all those spaces, and I think that 
it, there's something very, very exciting about that. What I want to pick on and really understand about you, Nick, is what is it about you or, you know, that you've seen or experienced in your life that makes you so drawn to the art of others that people are creating in this interactive media space? What I'm what I'm interested in, I, and I, I don't know that I can articulate this in a really um, in a really deep theoretical way, is sure. I'm just interested in these possibilities of of people making their own experiences, and I and I think that there's something extremely powerful about this idea of exploration and um, discovery that games create, right? Because you pick up a game controller and you don't know what it does, and then so you see a little guy on the screen with a mustache, and the screen's going off to the right, and there's like little things moving and little glowing bricks, and the first thing you do is you hit a button because you don't know what you're doing, and then when you hit the button, you see this um, this relationship appear, right? Like, oh, when I hit the button, that little guy jumps, and he jumps about this high. And if I hit the button with, well, I hold down one of these pads, he jumps a slightly different way. And then that becomes this vocabulary that I build. Now, obviously, a designer made all those decisions, right? Like, a designer determined how what happens when you hit that button. And a designer determines how high the jump is and how big the character is. But my understanding of that play experience is born out of my discovery. And I think that that leads to, like, the really interesting aesthetic space of, of that that's, that's different than other kinds of media. Because in other kinds of media, I'm... It's very obvious to me I'm being told something and I don't have a lot of control over it. And that's not to knock those media. I'm I, I I'm a constant consumer of fiction, so of and you know of televised fiction, of film fiction, of of novels. So I I think a lot about those forms and I like them. But like there's a different kind of aesthetic that comes from knowing that a user finds their own way and a user makes their own decisions and and their user carves their own path, even if that path was predetermined in an invisible way and they're just following the same road everybody else followed. And those aesthetics are just extremely powerful to me in terms of the way they can embody experiences so that I don't have to try to understand um, what it's like, uh, you know, to, 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 to be a pirate in the Caribbean by reading stories about it and trying to imagine it. I could just do it. And that's not, you know, and I, I, I'm very skeptical of these sort of empathy machine arguments and that, like, that you really recreate the experience. But, like, but it's true that you do have some kind of experience that's speaking to that aesthetic and that, you know, if as if stuff that you, you're thinking about in art um, is true in games. It's just true in this, like, what we, you know, what a lot of us call an embodied way, you know, that, like, I actually, I actually engage as a thinking, moving, doing, being with the material. And that's a new kind of form. And I've just been fascinated with that since I was a kid because, like, I role played since I was five years old, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons, like, you know, at five, Excellent. I started running it at six. I've done that consistently my entire life. And I'm like 42 now. So like, I, I've been role playing for, you know, for 36 years. And so like, in, in, in the heart of how I think about storytelling is this idea that, that we're going to tell a story together. And that I don't know what you're going to do exactly. But I, I'm going to build a story out of the stuff you do. And it'll be your story as much as it's mine. And that, I think, is really powerful. And I, I think it leads to this different view that game designers have that you see. It's very much on pl in play when you see Indie Game or the movie. Like, the truest moments of Indie Game or the movie are, like, Phil Fish watching someone play um, the game at a conference, right? Or or the Super Meat Boy guys talking about people's responses um, on the internet. Like, they're, they're having a video chat about the responses. And this idea mm -hmm. that you're in an observational role as someone engages with your, your, your um, work. And then you think about your work from that perspective of a vicarious experience of someone else experiencing your work in front of you. 
but that you know that their experience isn't your experience with that work. It's like a slightly different experience. And there's something just so powerful to me about that. Um, it just, it just, it's very moving to me. And so when I create, like, that's, that's what I'm trying to think about is like, what is a moment that the player is going to have where they're going to feel something or they're going to learn something or they're going to understand something for the first time or, or anew? And like, how can I build an interactive experience where they come to that moment by themselves? You know, I build the playground so that there's a slide, knowing they will slide down it at some point or do something on the slide. I don't know what, but like something a slide is capable of. And I know what it feels like to slide down the slide. So I know they're going to have that feeling. I just don't know when or how exactly or what that's going to fit into. But I know they're going to have it. And I just build the whole playground so that I know that that moment will happen. And I think that's that's what I'm doing when I design. It's a really impressive approach to design um, that I haven't heard articulated in quite this way before. Um, so I'm very grateful to you for saying all of this. It's it's something that, especially um, thinking from a consumer level, players don't realize how much goes into the design or what goes into the design. They just know that the slide is there, right? Um, mm-hmm. It is the um, designer's job, the designer's goal to build those experiences and and kind of like you said not even necessarily know what the experience is going to be but but build something there to tell a story and to create some sort of experience that is you know uh, both unifying and also unique to everyone that touches it and that's something that is special um and and to use the word again unique about video games this interactive media and is that kind of idea what inspired you to create playmatics uh, I mean, Playmatics was was a combination of those things. Like that, that's that's my aesthetic interest, and my co-founder and the CEO of Playmatics, Marco Wallace, has similar interests. We we like the idea of being um, creators in a medium where we have the space to like make new things, um, and that and that is very powerful to us. And as as a as an artist myself, that is my motivation is to like find new ways to do that. And I mean, you know, you're an artist the way everybody's an artist, right? So you. You, you walk down the street and the light comes through the leaves the right way and then suddenly you're thinking about that song you heard this morning and this thing that happened to you when you were 12 and then you're like, oh my God, I've got it, right? And, you know, <laughs> and I mean, I'm not, I don't want to diagnose that because I don't think it's that super important. It's just like what moves you as an artist. Uh, and like, and, and I think every, you know, everyone who has any creative spirit has that, those moments. But like, I think that the idea that we can channel those in these unique ways is what made, it made it really powerful. And then Playmatics came into being because, you know, effectively, Margaret and I, uh, you know, to get a little bit more commercial about it, you know, in terms of like what our what our how how the company actually formed is that Margaret yeah. and I had worked together on a company called Rebel Monkey. We had met, um, you know, several years prior, uh, you know, working on various projects in our individual institutions. We came together. We raised about three million dollars to build a casual MMO uh, that was a that was called Camp Fu, and that got to about beta, and then the economy crashed. Um, and MMOs at beta in 2008 was not, um, not a market that was really uh, supported in the venture community anymore. And so we folded that company and then out of that company, we built this new company, Playmatics. And we were really focused on, on this experience that both Margaret and I had of like thinking about how to use games in, in weird ways. And that led us to build a number of different projects. Um, you know, so we've been working in, education a lot doing games around history and games around math we're currently working on a journalistic game that's 
uh, with a, I, I don't think I can talk about all the details of it yet, but it was a major um, investigative journalism uh, organization sort of thinking about how an issue, a journalistic issue, can be painted in gameplay. We have a couple of games that we've worked on with neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists that are in clinical trials uh, to help people with issues like uh, ADHD or smoking, like quitting smoking. Um, we've done a lot of work with AMC television, HBO television, A&E television on games around uh, different brands and different properties. And our original IP that we're developing right now is all about sort of thinking about different kinds of stories and different kinds of gameplay and how how different kinds of interactive elements like, say, mobile VR could be used to tell interesting stories or how you know, how, how genres can be bent to create new kinds of young adult stories. We've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I want to dive in deeper into this idea that you keep bringing up that, um, that interactive medium, that games can be used to tell stories in all different forms. So your company is working with organizations that, and, and creating games and interactive um, projects with organizations in, in ways that you would normally see. I mean, these aren't necessarily, you know, um, consumer um, projects that you're going to see on your PC on Steam or on the PlayStation 4. I mean, um, what are your thoughts on games that are created outside of the typical video game consumer space and, and the effect of those on, uh, or, or I guess just the general effect of those? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, when you recognize some of the unique aspects that interactivity can bring and that games as the art form of interactivity can bring, you start realizing that, um, oh, you know, like, it would be really good if, you know, I, I was trying to teach you something about how to add and subtract fractions and the system knew kind of how good you were at it so it could serve you up problems that were balanced to the level of of challenge that you could actually succeed at. And we tuned that so that it kept you sort of like on the edge of your ability. And it'd be really nice if we actually matched your progress so that you felt like there was some success you could rise towards, right? And you'd have like sort of short-term successes that would keep you encouraged, but long-term successes that would kind of keep you around. It'd be kind of cool if it looked good because then you'd want to stick with it longer. And if it was fun to move the fractions around because then you'd kind of stick around. And it's like, oh, wait, we're talking about games. That's a game what I just described. And then you realize that, like, oh, we could just use games in education, right? Like, like why not? It seems to make perfect sense. And, and, and I'm not the first person to say this by any means, right? This is, like, Jim G and, you know, a bunch of people who've been through the White House. And, you know, like, there's a lot of people who've kind of talked about this problem and, you know, like like ASU's research groups and, um, and uh, you know, Constance Stunt Cool Squire and Kurt Squire and, you know, like a pet lab at Parsons. Like, I mean, there's a lot of people thinking about this problem. So it's not like I'm saying anything unique here. But like that realization that like, oh, these techniques that games are good at could be used for this other thing and then could make change in the world is exciting. It's not the only thing I want to do as an artist, but I love doing it. Um, I love it because, A, I like making change in the world and uh, helping people's lives, but I also, it's really hard, you know? Like, if, like, fraction, if you're trying to make fractions fun, fractions have to be fun. And, you know, these, these experiences go wrong when you're not leveraging games properly. When you try to just, like, throw fractions into Minecraft, it's not gonna work, right? Because the play of Minecraft is not about fractions. You have to find a way to really leverage games effectively. But that becomes really interesting. And the thing is that as, this is one of the generational differences I was talking about at the beginning of this conversation is that, um, you know, as more and more people grew up playing games, just more and more people think about games as something they do. 
And if you think about games as something you do, then you don't think it's so weird that, like, maybe if I was going to read a news article, I might read it as a game. Or if I was going to study chemical reactions, I might do it in a game-like experience. Or, you know, and I think this is one of the most radical ones, but you're, I mean, this is literally starting to happen right now. If I want to quit smoking, I might play a game to help me quit smoking. And I mean, and given the rise of wearables, I mean, we're in a weird moment for wearables, but like the fact that people do think about the quantification of their exercise experiences and then they do build goals out of those quantifications, that's game design, right? So I I think that what we've done with game design is we've sort of discovered this way that people will engage with things and will stay motivated to engage with things and will feel feel progress and feel success motivating with things and once we know that then we can apply those things in all those ways and part of that's sort of like the way we figure out that like people have a really good memory for short bursts of music and so if i tie a short burst of music to my brand then you will probably remember my brand better better and then we get jingles and jingles aren't really music exactly like they're not like i wouldn't call a jingle a song it, 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 it doesn't really make sense to call it a song. It doesn't serve that purpose. It doesn't like fit that form, but it's using the properties of music to accomplish something else. And I think where, where we're at is like a whole bunch of industries, uh, some in a deep way, because education has been doing this for a long time, and some in a very nascent way, like healthcare, are starting to figure out that like, oh, games could be used to increase the efficacy of the things we're doing. And that's a fun space to work in, because like I said, it's it's very hard to do successfully. It's not it's not trivial even for game designers to like figure out how this game could be used to help you quit smoking. Right? You have to like really take apart the idea of games and put them back together. But that that's what I like. That stuff is fun. <laughs> well, I mean it's so obvious to me that you are clearly very passionate about uh, the potential in this space and what you are able to do and what you are able to, you know, create and and who you're able to work with and and I mean, are there people that you've had the opportunity to work with recently who are creating some, you know, amazing things, things that inspire you, things that you think are going to reach that goal of, you know, changing lives? Well, I mean, one of the things I'm I'm uh, talking about at Games for Change in a couple of weeks um, is a project that I worked on with a uh, with a, a political um, uh, activist and lobbyist named Edna Ishiak, who works with a group called Civic Nation around using uh, play behaviors and sort of, um, you know, game structures to create conditions for people to vote, um, to try to get a, to try to, you know, create, you know, increase civic engagement around getting people out to the polls on an election day. And that is fascinating to me that like, maybe the reason why we don't vote is because voting sucks. (laughs) Right. And if voting didn't suck, like if voting was a block party, maybe we would do it. Right is like a really exciting thing that Edna and I talked about a lot, and that there's actually research that backs up that she found when she when she pursued this. So, um, you know, and so and then this organization put on some tests for this, and I don't want to give away the lead of our talk, but like, you know, there's some promise there about how this actually could work, and it's not hard to do. So, like that kind of stuff is super exciting to me. And then I look at, um, you know, there's been a lot of controversy around the neuroscience stuff because I think the research side of it has been kind of weak in some of the bigger companies that have come out. Um, I don't think I'm saying anything radical there, but the potential that we know that if you put someone into um, training uh, in, a, in a lab to like learn, to, to, to practice certain kind of cognitive skills that we can build meta skills that improve how your brain functions as you get older and that we could build games that just 
do that, right? Like that's super exciting. And and I think there's also something extremely exciting to me about the idea that creators um, who are coming from a diverse variety of backgrounds that are expressing gender identities, racial identities, sexual identities, socioeconomic identities, um, are getting the opportunity to sort of express themselves in storytelling through a medium that's that's that can reach so many people is also very exciting to me too because it's not just that um, it, that that those stories can be told and those 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 designers can have a voice it's that we can effectively queer games right we can we can think about how games can be subverted towards other kind of needs and towards other other types of design because designers are, are advocating for identities that are maybe outside of the realm of the identities that games have occupied up to that point. And so like all of those things are like very exciting to me. And, and you can see that like, as I'm doing this, I, I kind of, I do it half as an artist and half as a teacher, right? Like some of this stuff is the stuff that I'm doing, <laughs> but I, I mean, I also like in New York city, I'm surrounded by really smart people, like students doing work, really good independent designers. I've taught a lot of people, but I also kind of know a lot of people and I've obviously learned from a lot of people and an event like come out and play is so exciting because we, um, we just like to get 30 games from all around the country that are new. So we get to meet designers who are working all, you know, in all sorts of different places and like just trying to create weird, silly things at the same time. And, you know, it's kind of why I'm interested in play NYC is that I think that I think it's good for designers and um, people interested in the design and the consumer side um, to have a place to meet and talk and share ideas. Because I think that's where that, that that kind of network where we can like push on each other and critique each other and, you know, sort of show support by showing we all exist is just a really valuable thing at a moment where an industry is trying to reinvent itself. That goes back to something you mentioned kind of at the beginning of this interview uh, was the idea that you, you really want to just make things everywhere, uh, you know, help other people, that modernism that you mentioned. Um, so that's really exciting as well. Tell me about uh, Come Out and Play and give, give me the nitty gritty on this project. Sure. So Come Out and Play is, we call it a street game festival. Um, it's for games that you play in public. That's the kind of core center of it. And it started, um, I think, 12 years ago. At this point, I think last year was our 11th year, so this is our 12th year. Um, and it was an intersection of a bunch of designers who were kind of thinking about these problems. The main one was Greg Treffry, who was at the time an, a graduate student at NYU, and he had made a game called Payphone Warriors. And he, which was, you, you played a game where you, you, it was sort of like a base capture game where you called payphones uh, around New York. And it was sort of exploring the idea that payphones were disappearing. Um, and... He had this idea as part of his um, thesis work to build a festival of these games that was sort of founded on the principle that a lot of people make these games. It's not like these games were new. It's just nobody ever makes them together, and it's very hard to get an audience for them because they pop up, and they're, very, they're transient, right? They pop up, and they disappear. And so he had the thought of, like, well, if you just made a festival where a bunch of people could come together then you could have a lot of people you know, get involved. And, and he happened to do this at Game Lab where a bunch of us... Uh, myself, uh, with a game called The Big Urban Game, which ran in Minneapolis, St. Paul. I worked on that with Frank Lance, who's now the head of the Game Center, and Katie Salen, who founded um, uh, Institute of Play. Uh, Mattia Romeo, who was working on a game called uh, ConfQuest that ran in the Southwest. Catherine Herdlick, who was doing like DIY and kind of pop-up playgrounds, uh, you know, designed to kind of look at how, user, like, how users could like build play spaces for themselves and then play those play spaces. We were all kind of thinking about the same problems, and Personally, I was coming out of the uh, the um, 
the 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 2004 election and really angry that during the Bush Kerry election there were all these restrictions on assembly that were going on. We had these like um, free speech spaces that the campaigns would set up where protesters could go stand, which I thought was the most outrageous thing I'd ever heard because the United States is a free speech space. The right to assembly is written into our founding documents. Mm -hmm. So I very much wanted to create an activity that got people in public so that they could just show they had the right to be in public and do weird things in public. Cause like I had this, I had this concept in my mind that like, um, I want to protest assembly rights, but that doesn't make any sense. Cause like, I'm not going to stand in public with a sign that says I have a right to stand here. It's like redundant. Um, so I was like, well, what do you do to protest assembly rights? And I was like, oh, you just go Dada. You just do something crazy in public. Cause you're protesting public rights by being in public at all. Right. If, if 50 of us stand in a street, ta-da, we're protesting assembly um, I don't care what you do when you do that, right? Anything you do is protesting assembly because you're showing you have a right to assemble and use public space. And so I think this, this so my personal desires were sort of like a, a kind of political civic desire of getting people out in public and showing them that they had the right to use public space for what they wanted to. And this was coupled with a shared belief that the group had. So I, I differentiate that because I'm not trying to put that belief on come out and play. Um, but it was coupled with a shared belief that come out and play had that like, all of these people are designing games and they don't know each other. All of these people want to play games, but they only hear about them on Boing Boing after they happened. Can we make a, a setting where designers can meet, players can meet, you know games are going to run, you could try like 15 of them at once, and then maybe that can create opportunity, like business opportunities, testing opportunities, community opportunities for designers. And we did that, like I said, 12 years ago in New York City. And we've done it every year since. Uh, and at this point now, the model, we, we have a sister festival in San Francisco. We've run come out and plays in Los, in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. And because we're not, because it's a free festival that we don't try to um, control, we've now had sister, fe sister festivals run all around the world. So London, Bristol, I'm just naming the ones I can think of off the top of my head, Athens, Berlin. There was one in Italy, I don't remember where. Um, we've been talking to Toronto about this, uh, games have run, individual games have run in, in Australia before. Um, so like, like we've actually had like, like this is a form has started to kind of like spin out into all these interesting play festivals. What do you think about, uh, you know, the future of games, these projects that, you know, can be small street games or fully fledged, uh, uh creations, that, uh, you know, tell stories and that make a difference and that affect people. Uh, what are your, what is this going to look like in three, five, ten years? Well, I mean, the three to five year thing is hard. That's really hard to tell because games are in a little bit of a weird slump um, right now. Like, uh, you know, like like the, the publishing models of the last, uh, you know, the last uh, of ten years ago have collapsed completely at this point. Um there just isn't a lot of funding for development anymore, and that's making it hard. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I, while I think that from a creative opportunity, the independent games moment we're in is amazing and unparalleled in history, um, I think from a commercial standpoint and a viability standpoint is really not good. The mobile marketplace is just super hard to make a living in, and it's... And, and and I don't believe in the end apocalypse. I feel like like I think that when people talk about that, they're just it's just like oh, too many people are creating things. And I was like, is that the world we want, where people can't create things? I think that's not <laughs> that's, that's not actually the argument we want to make. I think the problem is the markets don't work. 
like like the market doesn't make sense the price models don't make sense the distribution doesn't make sense the, the it's certainly the um awareness of games is terrible and i'm not knocking the press on this i think there's a lot of really good people in the press trying to solve these problems but we haven't created an ecosystem a consumer ecosystem that makes sense for that and other media that that can support what we do yet and i think that that's like really part of the enterprise so what's going to happen in the next three to five years i don't know are we in an atari crunch moment right where we're gonna um we're gonna just like see like a bunch of people just like start lowering the bar on game quality because that's the only way they can make money and then we have to rejuvenate it um, or are we going to find, you know, I know there's a lot of people thinking about, well, what would it mean to create channels that could actually sustain livings for artists? And, you know, like what, what would that look like and how could we make that happen? I mean, I think the arts are always going to be competitive. I don't think it's ever going to be that like everybody who wants to make a game will, will make $60,000 a year making games. Um, but I, I, this is not healthy what's going on right now. Right. Um, and so I think, and I think, you know, I personally blame Apple, blame Android, blame Steam, blame the consoles. I think that there's not, there's not really a market that's trying to support this kind of innovation. And, and if you look in the past at what happened to like casual games and Facebook games, we should be really scared because those markets died. Like they died because they stopped innovating. Um, and I can chart that history like directly of like when you know when when Zynga took over and all the games became Vil games. Unsurprisingly, players got bored with Vil games at a certain point. They didn't want to just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Right. You know, it's it's like as if if television put all its bath eggs into like Walking Dead and just was like walk it will be Walking Dead forever. Like that would be insane. We're gonna get bored of zombies. We know this because there were zombie movies in the past, and then we stopped making them, right? <laughs> so it's not it's not crazy to think that that consumers are faddish and we want new things. Um, so I think that part of it is like the whole industry, but and I, and I, it's not like I'm blaming individual people here. So if I say like I'm like I, I see the faults at Steam, it's not like I think evil people at Steam are trying to crush us or stupid people at Steam are are just missing opportunities. I think that that we don't know. We're trying to figure out. Um, as an industry, what we, what will be best? And when we're dealing with like self-interested individual people, it's always going to be kind of a fight. But I think we all should recognize that game playing is not going away. It, like even if it it seems a little old hat in education now, or even if um, you know like we feel like there's just like thousands and thousands of games, and I don't have to pay attention to it on Apple. Oh, because on, on on my iPhone, I can just get a game when I want it. There's a space in which we are going to find new things in a better way and we're going to have better work. So consumers will be happier, developers will be happier if we have an ecosystem where all of this makes sense. And I think until that ecosystem comes into being, we're just going to have a lot of trouble um, you know, making all this happen. What do I think is going to happen in the distant future? Games are going to be part of media, right? We're going to forget about all this nonsense about how games hurt us or games are destructive or like... Games have to be restricted because they hurt kids, because we've literally said that about every entertainment media since the beginning of time. Um, and we're gonna, we just know that that's going to happen. All the old people who don't understand what games are will be dead, and then everyone who's <laughs> alive will have played games growing up, and no one will sweat that anymore. And when we get to that space, then I think there's an opportunity for us to... Um, you know, really have like figure out what role games are going to play as an art form, and, and have games be more universal to people's experiences. Uh, and we'll get out of this trap we're in right now, which I think is the biggest problem, which is that um, games are still kind of defined as, um, uh, you know, as console AAA games. Like, we still 
kind of do talk about a gamer as that person, even even with all the indie games we have and all the casual games we have and all these other play experiences, right? We're still like looking at on the digital side, like it, it it's got to be a twenty hour experience at least that requires you to have mastered some set of controls. And if you're playing a board game, it's like Puerto Rico and up, or else you're not really gaming. You know, like we still, everyone still has that sensibility, including people who play casual games. And it, and I, I was talking with um, John Sharp and Carlene Macklin about this recently, and we had this conversation where we realized that, like, oh, it's as if you said that, like, as a movie watcher, all you watched were slasher films, and that everything else that you watched as a movie wasn't a movie. I mean, yeah, I watch romantic comedies, but like, but like, I don't watch movies. <laughs> Right, like, like that human centipede shit is disgusting. Right, like it's like it's like it's crazy. It's like no, I mean, like obviously, um, you know, like uh, uh, Beast of the Southern Wild is a movie. Like, like it's 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 not a movie the way Avengers is a movie, but they're all movies. It's just like we start to differentiate what movies we watch, and I think that games haven't gone through that cycle, and it hasn't gone through that cycle on the media side. It hasn't gone through that cycle on the consumer side. Hasn't gone through that cycle in a real way in terms of figuring out the business models on the distribution side and developers are just trying to make things in that space. And I think in 10 years we'll have figured that out and there will be more sustainable models. Cause I don't see people on mobile phones uh, not playing games like that. I think is the biggest difference in the world is, to me is that like people want to play games on that mobile device. They like hunt them down in markets that are horrible to find things. They still find things. So it tells me that that play experience is real. The rise of board game culture in the way it has, it might be a fad that drops off after a while, but the the sheer wild creation that it's presenting, it seems to me like that's a sustainable industry, and that we may just stick with it. And if that's the case, then I think we're going to find ways to make all of that work. Um, and, and I'm just I just really want to see it happen. Uh, and I'm being a little reductive here, right? Like we we could dive deeper into like. How does board game culture work? How successful is board game culture? How does mobile game culture work? How successful is that? But I think that, to me, the future is that we're going to keep being creative. More voices are going to keep being heard. We're going to tell better and more powerful stories. We're going to have stronger and more compelling aesthetic experiences. Games are going to get weirder. And we're going to start challenging the notion of games in more sophisticated and more um, enlightening ways. And we're going to have more controversial games that force people to like really challenge what we do. And the kind of things you see where there are people protesting at the Whitney are in the future for games, right? Like that's that's coming for us, and it's good because it means we're an art form. And the and the philosophies are going to change. And we're going to see more thinkers come up, and young thinkers are going to come up with new ideas, and they're going to tear down the ideas of the old. And we can have giant theoretical fights at our conferences, <laughs> and we can all kind of hate, hate, you know, t talk about how the, how the old people were never making games at all. And we need to tear down the world, and how the the youngins are destroying everything that was valuable about our medium. And then we will have a healthy, fractitious, <laughs> bile-filled art medium that creates work that we'll remember for the rest of history. And we're going to get there. We just gotta. I hope we do it in a way that keeps indie game designers fed for a while, <laughs> and lets more people see our work. It's interesting to to watch how different parts of this industry are adapting to the constant, ever changing needs that sometimes are being met and sometimes aren't, and 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 what the future and the few next few years are going to look like in terms of addressing all of that. It's 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 fascinating stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, and and I think a lot. I mean, some of it is because, like I said, we've had enough time now that that people who study the humanities are starting to look at games and be interested in games, right? When games started, it was a lot of programmers, 
and then some artists and then some sound designers. It was like people who came at it from the technical side because it was a technical thing. And that makes sense. And it's led to the, the you know, I'm not trying to diminish that at all. It's led to the unbelievable advancements we've had in the technologies that we have in games. And that's led to aesthetic possibilities that would, were unimaginable before. And, you know, and like, you know, people like Ian Bogost um, uh, have written about that, like the ways that the technologies actually kind of informed what we do, right? Um, but now we're reaching a point where people who think about culture, think about stories, think about art history are getting involved in games, right? That that's like now that as you think about cult, like like the relationship to culture and how we tell stories and like what what human needs are are starting to look at games and i think games haven't been as good at that right like our the storytelling in games you know if we're honest with ourselves hasn't been as good as the storytelling in other forms um we haven't reached the heights that other forms have yet in terms of this like powerful universal work that's challenging and and i mean and if you watch film you know if you watch interesting independent films you're like they, they clock us like clock us on on their ability to like create these kinds of like powerful emotional experiences. That's not to say the medium can't do it. I 100% the medium can't believe the medium can do it. I just think we as game developers have to start doing that hard work now if that's what we really want to do. You know, I think that like we're in an interesting time where people are starting to experiment with, you know, how we can tell new kinds of stories, show new kinds of identities, think of new kinds of play. I think on the play side we're much stronger because it's like it's our wheelhouse. I think on the story side, it's coming, and there are good pieces of work. I'm not trying to say there aren't any really great stories in games, but like, I think the level of sophistication in that is just going to grow as more people who come from those backgrounds start thinking about what games can be. They're not going to take games away from game designers because like they, they like people coming from film do not know how to make games. But we also should recognize that like there have been people who've been telling stories for 100, 100 years, right? And and they've gotten really really good at that. And if, if we wake up and we decide we're going to make a story, it doesn't necessarily mean we know how to do it. Um, and I think that intersection is going to be really fascinating. And you're starting to see it pop up in these weird places like immersive theater, right? Where you're having this intersection of like game designers, um, particularly through the screen of live action role playing designers with theatrical people who have never thought about games before in their life. And the weird fusions that's creating, like I, that's the stuff that's the most exciting to me is these places where interactivity in games are going to just trans create whole new forms you know would you have guessed six years ago there'd be an escape room in every major city in this country <laughs> no way yeah you know i mean it's like it's crazy right and escape rooms are not that good right now like most of them suck right um some of them are great but most of them suck and then you imagine like well what happens when an escape room collides in a real way with punch drunk like you get a sleep no more escape room mm-hmm like, what is that? Nobody knows. Like, we have no idea. But, like, anybody working in this field knows there's a thing there. Right? We're all, like, looking that way. Sure. Or what happens when a street game becomes part of a, like, a permanent space. And then it becomes, like, part of a community experience. And, like, can we make a new form of stickball now that we know everything we know about games? Or when education, like, when going to school is playing games all day. Which there are places right now you can do that. And that, that that your experience of school is just dynamically adjusted the way games are adjusted. Like all of that stuff is like these are all very real like, the things I'm mentioning are not like like speculative, far speculative future possibilities. These are like things I have literally talked to people about. You know, like these are these are possibilities I've either seen or the potential for them is, is very, very straightforward. And this is leaving out you know, what what is this what is this like giant bag of air that is VR and like and like, what? Where is the substance in it? And what is that substance? And like, 
you know, like, and what is AR going to be when, you know, 10 years from now it actually lands? Um, you know, like what, like what, what, what are those possibilities going to be too? And I think that the, the, the reason why I'm so excited to be teaching in the space and working in this space is that I think it's the interactive designers who are going to figure it out. So we who are working in independent games are the most likely people to solve these problems because we're the ones who are actually thinking about what is it for a user to explore and discover an experience. And that's going to be at the heart of all of these things. Is it going to mean we get, we're going to understand how to make theater automatically? No, but they're going to need us to fill in that piece. And then that gives us the possibility of making entirely new forms of art. And I do not know what I want to do with my life if it's not make entirely new forms of art. There are some thoughts from Nick Fortuno of Playmatics and Come Out and Play. If you'd like to find Nick or his companies on the internet, you can visit playmatics.com comeoutandplay.org and you can find Nick on Twitter at Nick Fortuno that's N-I-C-K-F-O-R-T-U-G-N-O and when I asked Nick if he had some advice to send you all home with he had this to share give your business card to everybody yeah that's my advice like I think that people think people who haven't done a lot of networking and I've been running businesses now for 10 years right people who who um, think think about networking who haven't done it before somehow think that like what you do is you go to a party and you meet somebody and you shake their hand and they're like you won't believe it but I have a million dollars and I've been waiting to make a game and you are the person and that's what networking is and that is the absolute opposite of what networking is right uh, <laughs> um, networking is you just you just you just meet thousands of people and then somebody remembers that they're the person that they went to college with is now working at this media company and they need a game for something and didn't they talk to somebody who did that weird game thing that they saw and maybe they still have that card in the closet. Like, that's networking, right? Loose tie. So if you're going to be hustling, right, to try to make it make a go of it, you need to be in public. Like, you need to talk to people. You need to, you need to meet people. And I'm not saying, like, in that, like, I'm going to bore into you until you give me the, the million dollars I want way. I mean in the go to, go to parties, go to festivals, go to industry events, go to cool cultural events, meet people, talk to them, joke with them, give them your card. That, that's, that's how this world works. I, I can't tell you how much business I have gotten in my life just giving a talk somewhere and not even selling myself. I mean, like you, you probably noticed in this interview, like I didn't really talk that much at all about the specific projects that Playmatics has done. Right, like, because it's not, because I don't, I don't think that's the most valuable thing to know about me, um, and I think that you don't need to do that. You don't need to sell that hard, but you need to hustle, and you hustle by giving your business card to everybody. You know, like, let, let everybody know who you are. You should be proud of it. People, if your work is good, you shouldn't hide it. You should share it with people, and people are genuinely interested in the weird shit that people do. So, if you just go out and meet people, that's how you make opportunity for yourself. I work for Dreamsail Games. We're an indie game studio in Midtown Manhattan. Um, I'm our marketing, business development, content creator person. Um, I wear a lot of hats as, sure. as uh, folks in indie. That's studios. Rebecca Bennett, the marketing and community manager for Dreamsail Games, an indie studio whose work you may be familiar with. We uh, released our first game, Blade Ballet. 
uh, last August, um, a local and online multiplayer game for Steam and PS4. But recently, their company has shifted to a different budding aspect of the industry. We've pivoted into VR development, so we've been working on a VR project for about four and a half months now. Um, before that, we were prototyping and experimenting since VR is so new and weird, and we had to learn what worked. Because <laughs> there's a lot that doesn't. <laughs> so you said you know, you're know you not a programmer. You are the yeah. marketing community manager for DreamSale Games. What has your experience been like with marketing and community management for an indie studio? It's been great. Um, I have a lot of freedom to figure out what areas of the community um, I can really build. So I've, I've been streaming um, a little bit before we released Blade Ballet. We made a Twitch account and we started uh, streaming um, devlogs and we started streaming uh, us playing the game. And then once the game released, I sort of like formed this community of, of people playing with me and I did tournaments and I did this random kind of event that I created called Title Games um, that was like an in, in, inner community tournament um, that lasted about every month. Um, that was cool because we just got to kind of like add it on off the cuff. Like there was no like bureaucracy to go through being like, here's the reasons why we think Twitch would be very good for a community. It was kind of like, all right, well, I think that Twitch might be useful. I see other people are doing it. Let's just try it out and see what happens. <laughs> um, so we've gotten to do that, and it's it's very, you can just kind of add stuff like that. Like I, I made a Snapchat account that didn't, Snapchat is weird. No one really <laughs> followed the Snapchat account. I was like, all right, Snapchat's not really working for us. I'll forget about it. It's, you can kind of try and succeed and try and fail very quickly when you're like doing community at an indie game studio. That's an interesting point yeah. is, um, you know, trying and failing uh, in, in quick succession with an indie studio things move much faster it's easier to turn a ship when you're a, a fairly small ship as opposed to you know a big you know triple a studio i suppose yeah absolutely plus it's easier to get folks to kind of go along with what i want them to do so i'll just like grab a program and be like you're part of this devlog now because <laughs> <laughs> we sit right next to each other so how many people are a part of dream sale right now 13 people Okay, so yeah, I mean, pretty small. You really could grab whoever and probably get them to help out. Yeah. Is that a is that a positive thing? What are some of the positive and negatives of you know working with you know thirteen people to you know create some of these huge projects? I honestly think thirteen is is like the ideal amount of people. Um, it's actually pretty big for an indie studio. Uh, people are often surprised when I say we have like over ten people because. A lot of indie games are made with like four or five, which is amazing. Right. Um, so for us, it's been really great. Uh, like we made Blade Ballet in a year, which is really rapid. Um, many games are take much longer than that. And I think we were able to do that because we have such a large studio. And then we were able to pivot into VR and we were able to, we switched from Unity to Unreal. And because we have like four programmers, we could we could really do that. Like we could have people learning at the same time as like supporting Blade Ballet and kind of trying to pivot into this new topic that we'd never really explored before. So having a studio like that allows us to take on multiple pursuits without slowing down everything um, and just do things faster. So uh, streaming as a marketing tool, you mentioned, 
that's been something that a lot of small studios have been doing, showing off their games throughout the development process and, and showing their games to people before games are released. Do you see that as something, as a trend that's going to continue to grow in this industry? I do. I, I definitely see it as a trend that's positive and will continue to, to grow. Um, some of the, it's really especially good, I would say, for online multiplayer games. You look at, um, uh, oh my god, what's it called? Brawlhalla. You look at Brawlhalla. Oh, sure. They have an amazing online community, and a huge part of that is these streams they do. I think they do a stream every day. I get notifications on my Twitch app, like, Brawlhalla is now live. And they have a huge following there. Um, I think they're a great example of like how uh, a studio can really do streaming well um, to both show because they have uh, development streams where they show off like new characters, and then they also have like event streams. Um, so that's just it's like a positive example of of how to do it well. <laughs> um, it really does take a lot of effort, though. Like when I was doing it for Blade Ballet, um, I had to stream twice a week, every week, at the exact same time. You really needed to become part of people's schedules. Sure. So that's why it's like, studios do it, but in order to do it well, you really have to make it a part of your marketing strategy. You can't just say, okay, Twitch is great, we're going to do Twitch, and then stream like once, every <laughs> once in a while. Uh, and you will never get a following that way. Like, you really need to do what fate like the big name streamers do and that is to create a schedule and have people know and to expect you sure i mean that's what we have yeah. to do with the podcast right yeah. is be consistent every week it's same things out so people know when to expect it and where to find it yeah exactly so uh, one question for you becky marketing is probably one of the things that small indie studios struggle with the most especially if they're not working with a publisher or, or representation in some form yeah what's some insight that you can share with studios who think they have a really quality product, but, you know, might be struggling with marketing or struggling to, you know, get the word out in front of people? Oh, it's hard. Um, (laughs) I think one of the biggest issues is just how many games come out in a year. If you look at uh, some of the infographics from Steam last year, I think it was the most games, like a... significant percentage of games on steam came out in 2016 yeah which is just crazy so uh i'd say some of the biggest advice i can give is really focus on the social media platforms where your audience already lies so i see a lot of people saying like all right social media is important we need to be on everything so they go spend all their time posting on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on whatever. Um, but that's not going to matter if your audience doesn't exist there already. So you should be looking for, okay, let's say I'm making a giant robot game. Let me go on Reddit and see if there's a community for giant robot games on Reddit and try to find the influencers. It, it feels weird to say, like, influencers on Reddit with, like, high karma who might be able to, who I can give a demo to them and they'll post about it. Um, yeah, I guess influencers, that's that's probably a key point. Um, you don't have to do everything yourself. You go, you find someone who has a lot of followers, you who will like what you've produced. Like you can't go for just someone who has like a million bazillion followers. You have to find someone <laughs> who has a million bazillion followers and also likes what you're gonna create and has done stuff, um, created content about stuff like what you've created before. 
Um, so you know their audience will like it. And then they, if they like it, then they can shout it out to their audience. And that's a good way to get out into the world. Um, you see a lot of people trying to do that. But I think a mistake a lot of people make is having like a very scattershot method of reaching influencers as opposed to like targeted, like this person likes online multiplayer games. I'm making an online multiplayer game. I will target them. Um, that's one of the reasons why influencers are great because their audience knows that they're only going to go for uh, the stuff they actually really like. How do you even go about, you know, a- approaching? How do you find, you know, the right influencers? How do you, you know, where where are these people? How do you crack that influencer nut in your marketing campaign? It's it's still pretty difficult, and it's still. I mean, both me and my other marketing team member, Cindy, um, struggled with it a lot at the beginning of um, our like big influencer marketing push. A lot of it comes down to research, like just spending the time searching the the channels and figuring out like who will be the best person to contact. Um, it's a lot of time like looking for people's specific emails on their YouTube page uh, to reach out to them, creating spreadsheets upon spreadsheets of these people. Um, and also just knowing that sometimes things will happen organically and that's beautiful. Like we, and, and sometimes can be much better than reaching out and targeting people. So we had um, one stream, one YouTuber create a series of videos for us for Blade Ballet and they totally flopped like they blade ballet was not the right game for their audience like it really did not do well at all um the audience was like stop playing this game like this this is not what we want um and then on the other hand we had first of all we had like game grumps just pick it up and play blade ballet and we were like (laughs) how did they find it like what the heck um and a few other streamers uh youtubers like that and that's just kind of random like i'm gonna tell you right now like Sometimes people will just find your game, but once one big person picks it up, then in general, it's like a snowball. It's like once one person makes a video of your game, a bunch of other people will want to. Because um, everyone wants to kind of jump on that, oh, this game is cool train. So it can take uh, reaching a lot of like mid-range streamers or YouTubers at first who might be easier to contact, um, who have like a few thousand subscribers or even a few 10,000 subscribers and just reaching out to them, they might be a little more um, open and friendly to an email or a tweet saying, hey, here's a key, play my game. And then once you have enough momentum with mid-range streamers and YouTubers playing the game, then larger ones will say, hey, this is cool. I've seen a few videos of uh, you guys playing this. We should try playing it too. And that that saves some effort in trying to crack through like someone with a million subscribers who might get a million emails in a day with free keys and will never find your game yeah it's a serious concern uh emails getting buried you know yeah uh so let's switch topics just a little bit all right uh you said that dreamsale has shifted towards vr tell me your thoughts on the vr space and what dreamsale is finding as you're creating these new projects Uh, i'm obsessed with the vr space now I, it's, it's been growing a lot, even in the, I guess, seven, eight months now, we've been um, really a part of it. Um, It, so there's like virtual reality and there's augmented reality. And we're like very much into the virtual reality part because that's where a lot of like the uh, games are um, that we want to create at least. Sure. Um, 
And we found that one of the coolest things about it is that there's no like, one of the scariest and coolest things is that there are no standards about how you should be doing things. <laughs> so everything is an experiment about whether or not it will work, about whether or not it will make someone super nauseous and vomit everywhere. Um, <laughs> which is constantly an issue with VR. Like right. VR nausea is not a joke. People get pretty nauseous if you do the wrong thing. Um, and slowly there are like certain things you should know not to do, certain things that have become semi-standard. Um, and it's just cool because there's a lot of expectations for non-VR games. Like there are certain like categories that non-VR games fit into um, and ways people have become accustomed to doing things and things that an audience might expect from um, like a non-VR platform or a non-VR roguelike. In VR, first of all, you have like complete 360 degree freedom generally to move wherever you want. So you really have to think about like how you're crafting this world um, in, in, a, in a new way. And, and you just have to try to solve so many problems that you would never have to think about um, when someone's head is not in the game itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. That makes a yeah. lot of sense. What do you think about the VR marketplace right now? Do you think that there is a big enough audience to build an indie studio around? I sure hope so. <laughs> since <laughs> since that, that's what we're doing, kind of. Right. Um, it's interesting. The audience is not huge but they're salivating for content sure. and it's constantly growing. Like Oculus just put their rift on like a summer sale um, and it's been sold out like all summer. <laughs> you sold out on Amazon You when they, there's no answer of like when Oculus is actually shipped because their stock is so low because they keep selling out. Um, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of Oculuses that will add to the ecosystem, but I'm hoping a lot. Um, but in terms of number of headset owners, yeah, there aren't too, too many yet. But like I said, they're salivating for content. So when you do release a product um, that is good and fills like a need in the space, you have a huge number of people who will go for that because there really aren't that many others like it. You know, whereas with the PlayStation, you might have a huge number of owners of PlayStation, um, but then you have like all these competing amazing games that people are like, oh man, I really want Persona 5, but it's $60 and you know, Mass Effect Andromeda, but that's $60 and you have so much good content that you kind of like compete even um, when the genres are different, you know, in VR, it's like you create a game that's pretty awesome and you might be the only one who, that releases that month. That's pretty awesome. Sure. So, so yeah. just kind of being at the forefront of this fairly new corner of the industry is beneficial because there's a lot less competition. Yeah. Becky, at the end of every episode, I do ask my guests to share a piece of advice, something that has resonated with you or has been true for you, especially recently, that might be helpful for others who want to, you know, uh, be marketing or community managers for, you know, indie studios or want to 
you know, create their own games or are already creating their own games and, you know, just could use maybe a piece of advice. What's something you want to send people home with today? Hmm. I feel like I've been giving a lot of practical advice, so maybe I'll, I'll keep that trend, of, especially as, as we're talking about Play NYC in a convention. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah, absolutely. So we demoed Blade Belly at a lot of conventions, and because it's a local multiplayer game, we had tons of positive feedback and reinforcement from um, these like in-person events, and that's awesome. But if you don't galvanize, like if you don't like utilize that in-person energy, then it will just dissipate. And that was uh, a mistake we made with Blade Ballet. We kind of assumed that because it was so positive at conventions that it would translate into like giant online community. Um, and what we really should have done is we should have taken everyone's email at the convention and had them be a part of a beta list and it gave them steam keys and like had them be a part of like this pre-launch community to kind of bring in the excitement they felt when they played the game at PAX or at um, Playcrafting or wherever and have them make sure that they like remember us versus all the other games at the convention um, and continue being a part of our community even after they left the convention. Um, and that's, that's some advice that I have for anyone who will be demoing at Play NYC or is thinking about demoing at future conventions. You know, it's expensive, make it worth it by making sure that the community who you get, who play your game, continues to be a part of your community once the convention is over. That's Becky Bennett from DreamSale Games. You can find DreamSale on Twitter at DreamSale or RRBennett to find Becky, or visit DreamSale.com. Hi, I'm Lawrence Messia. I'm the owner of Goodnight Games and the lead designer. And why I'm here? Because Dan was like, hey man, there's this cool guy who wants to interview you. And I'm like, oh man, I love talking about myself. So here we are. <laughs> I am a painter by trade who taught himself coding in a Barnes & Noble. You're not going to believe it, but I did Christmas ornaments. But, yeah, I uh, did, like, all that scrapbooking stuff that the old ladies love. That was me. So I design all that and ship it. And, uh, yeah, worked with Martha Stewart for a long time. Well, it was very, um, kind of just this awkward 9 to 5 thing where it was very stifling. Because, uh, if you've seen our games, they're all dark and evil. And when you spend all your days going... Oh my god, my floral patterns, look at these. <laughs> it, it wears on a man, so. <laughs> I just wanted to get weird, honestly. Like, I wanted to make games, and I wanted to make weird things. I kind of had all the time in the world. I was like, screw it, we're doing it. We're doing it, we're making it happen, and that's that. And sat in that Barnes Noble for three months, just about every day, figuring out, uh... JavaScript, and then just went from there. It was just, okay, I can eat today, or I can, you know, drive to the store, you know, get some gas, and then code, and I kept choosing coding and coffee. That was my two things. Going back was death. 
it was the worst thing ever. So, if that's the worst thing ever, what's being a little hungry? You've got your company. You've got some good things going out there. Um, how did you? How did you end up um, with Goodnight Games? So we just kind of formed up. Um, the games were. We got the first one, and I didn't know anything about business, like not even a little bit. So as I was starting to form the company, um, I wound up taking on one of my friends had asked me to teach a uh, a game design class. Okay. For him, so I was like, "Ah, yeah, sure. This will, you know, learn on the job kind of thing." Because I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so I took it and I got two classes out of it that I was teaching game design at, and basically I was talking about what I was trying to do, and some of the students were like, "Dude, we can help." And I wound up meeting some very, very chill people um, who are still with me today. We're still at it. And, uh, you know, shout out to Camille, Oleg, and Donald, as well as the rest of the crew. Um, <laughs> those were the first guys. Um, and Jesus, can't forget Jesus. We, we started there, um, and then we just all incorporated together. So we got the LLC, we uh, got everything, and then uh, we just ran with it. Like, we made a lot of mistakes along the way, but we just hit the ground running, just releasing things all willy-nilly and broken. So you just kind of learned how to make games by making games, and you learned how to start a studio by starting a studio. Yeah, we, we didn't think. Not even not even once. We just did it. <laughs> um. <laughs> it's an impressive approach to the work. I, there are a lot of people, aspiring game developers out there, who uh, want to do this so badly but get caught up in the minutiae and in the details but that's not been your approach that's not been your experience yeah we're kind of this uh you know fast-moving team of degenerates that just kind of gets stuff done uh no matter the cost um it's always been that way we were always been working on like two three games at the same time there's sure. just kind of no stopping us what, what sort of advice would you share with people who maybe you're trying to figure out how to learn something is your advice really to just stop overthinking it and, and just do it just realize that the first thing that you're going to do is always going to be garbage so once once you realize that that thing is going to be trash who cares let's get it out of the way let's do it just go make do and then a lot of people get stuck on the like oh my god i i can't how do i start <laughs> right go. Who knows? Just do it. Like with games, I was like, all right, uh, you got to code them. Well, like, I guess I got to learn coding and then walk through the thing. Just literally saw JavaScript for coding and went, okay, I guess I'm here. Or JavaScript for game design and just went, all right, guess I'm here. Got it. Figured it out. Let's do it. I didn't think, because a lot of the debate now is like, oh, is Unreal Engine good? Is Unity good? Like, what should I use for what? Whatever. Just pick one doesn't matter. Just do it. Go. So I, I know that your first few games didn't really have many sales, uh, but you persevered anyway. How did you manage to do that? Well, we just, honestly, we just kept going. It's kind of all a blur. Like, we've had blips along the way of, uh, 
you know, like games that in the back end just did not go well. Um, things that exploded, you know, like um, people leaving, people showing up, like all this stuff, like all this behind the scenes kind of drama things. But um, they just kept coming and we kept getting better. And then sales kept going up. And it kind of helps. We stayed this theme of um, our games are one price. There are no ads. There are no in-app purchases. We refuse to do it. We'll never do it. Um, and I feel like we've got a very big following now because of that. Why is that? What What are you opposed to about um, ads in games? Well, I'm not opposed to free games using ads at all. Um, if it's working for you, by all means, keep going. I know that is the profitable solution. But I, I don't know. It just, to me, I feel like it ruins things. So, like, I want when people pick up the game, you're now in the game. There's nothing dragging you out. There's nothing, like, to remind you of the real world. You're just going. And a lot of that stuff with, like, say, the in-app purchases, you're not playing the game anymore. You're going, oh, crap, do I have that $3? And then if I do this, will I be, like, overpowered and then just, like, killing everything? And all that other stuff. I don't know. I just have a lot of bad taste in my mouth from shady practices with that, but I just refuse to ever do it. Okay. Tell me about Plunder Kings. Oh, uh, Plunder Kings is our first uh, shmup, so space shooter, um, that mixes basically burnout, gambling, and shooting. So it's, it's a weird combination of things. Um, how can I best elaborate this? So you play as a bunch of the a bunch of space mercenaries, and you heard that a planet had a bunch of money. So there's our our video game quality intro right there. Okay. So you you guys all fly out, and basically the game works in the sense that you come down, your ship upgrades as you fight. So your powers and um, your special abilities all change <laughs> during gameplay. So the more you kill, the more you'll unlock things, the more your class, because each one has a specific thing, will change. And the enemies as well level up and change as you go. So you'll have five stages, each are endless, um, with a variety of enemies that change over time. So what your the goal is, get in, get money, and at the end of play, like you'll have options to cash it out, or you could double or nothing, you could push forward, but you can also lose that if you press too much. Okay, so are we going to see Plunder Kings at Play NYC? Oh, it's going to be our main game there. Cool. Well, hey, I want to ask you a couple questions about um, the mobile space. Obviously, you know, that is where you, you know, you make your bread and butter in, in uh, the mobile marketplace. But it is one hell of a crowded marketplace. How do you manage to, um, you know, uh, rise to the top of, you know, all of the different apps and games that are coming out all the time? Uh, and, and what do you say to people who maybe share those concerns? Well, it's, yeah, it is. You summed it up right there. It's, it's crowded. It's awful. Um, there's so much, like, so many crap apps. Like, how many times can you clone Flappy Bird? with Miley Cyrus's head on it. Like, it's just... It's it's the Wild West. It's like Atari back in the day. Like, anyone can do anything. Um, and that's both good and bad. And you just have to realize, if you're going to do this, you're not going to get found. You're not going to get, like, you know, discovered overnight. It's just going to... 
you know, you just got to chug away at it. I don't know what the secret of success is. I only know to just keep doing it. And you don't want to do what everyone else is doing, which is, you know, like there's 80 million cute pet apps. We don't need another one. Um, They're all going off the same formula. You got to change it up. That's really all it is. It's just change it up and keep going. Get, um, I'm just completely rambling. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's all right. Hey, I have a question for you. Yeah. Why work in the mobile space? I mean, have you guys ever tried to, you know, make games for other platforms? Is that something that ever interests you in the future? Well, so we're actually, uh, one of our games that we're working on now is going to be our first Steam game. So, yeah, uh, mobile wasn't really the first choice. It was more that was the easy choice. Because a lot of the, uh, you know, like your step below Unity or Unreal or like all the professional engines often a lot do mobile. So we're like, okay, cool. That's, you know, an easy entry point. Let's start there. Awesome. Well, hey, Lawrence, before we end the episode, I do have to ask you, um, you've already shared some pretty decent insight, but do you have any other advice that you'd like to send people home with today? Something that's been true or has resonated with you recently in, in your, you know, recent struggles in the, in the, in the industry? I see a lot of people from doing this and going to these meetups, like, they'll be working on the same game for, I don't know, three, four, five years and just never release it, never really do anything to it. But they're, they're out there, they're like marketing it, they're trying. And all I can say is just finish the damn thing. Make a game, it doesn't matter, just ship it. Just ship a game. Once you've done it, that's it. Congratulations, you've done it. The process is over. Make the next game a little better, and then the next game a little better, and keep chugging away at it. Like, they don't have to be these giant Herculean efforts as a first game. More often than not, your first game can be trash. So just keep going and keep getting better. Because the more you make, the more you'll improve. That was Lawrence Messia from Goodnight Games. You can find Goodnight Games on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under the name Goodnight Games, as well as goodnightgames.com. Thank you all for joining us for week one of the Road to Play NYC series. Our last guest this week is Ben. I'm Ben Miller. I'm the lead developer at Fabraz, a New York-based game studio. Fabraz has made some pretty cool and acclaimed games, and they just ported a game of theirs, Slimeson, to the Nintendo Switch. It'll release on August 3rd. What has your experience been like uh, porting something over to the Switch? Has that been a positive thing? Has, have you found that to be kind of difficult? Um, I mean, I think it's always a little difficult just because you get used to working on one platform that has its own set of tendencies and then you move to somewhere else that's just like, in some ways, metaphorically, some ways, literally a different language. Um, so like, it, I'd say overall a very good experience, but there's always this element of trying to figure out like, oh, something that we thought was a given broke down and we need to figure out how to make it work on this new platform. That kind of sounds like you know, game development in general is is over 50% of kind of just problem solving, isn't it? Yeah, um, a large part of it is just sort of one giant puzzle of figuring out how to get the idea in your head into a format that other people can actually play. And some of it's just like being creative and putting it like putting it onto the screen. Other parts usually is just puzzle solving, how figuring out how to actually explain it to the computer to get it to run. So as the lead developer of a fairly successful indie studio, is the puzzle-solving aspect of your job something that you really enjoy? 
I mean, I've done, I'm, I'm primarily a programmer, though, on indie stuff, you know, people on the team wear many hats, but that's usually where I focus, and I've done a little bit of programming work bef besides in-game stuff, and it's definitely, it's definitely the most enjoyable and interesting in a game format. You get, it, it feels a little bit like, in broad strokes, playing a game itself, you have sort of clearly defined objectives and goals of what you're working towards, whether that's, like, a feature mechanic you're trying to implement, um, you get that sort of quick return of investment and reward when you get something running that, you know, the, the appeal of being able to just start implementing mechanics and see the game starting to take shape, that's a very rewarding experience when you're actually in the thick of it. Uh, so how did you end up teaching yourself programming? How did you figure out what worked for you to, you know, take on a new skill like that? Um, little bits and pieces here and there. For one, I... Again, I studied music in undergrad, which I was initially deciding between that and philosophy and decided music was the much more practical, down-to-earth option to make a living. <laughs> um, that sure. didn't quite pan out, so I had some time free sort of the summer following graduation and a brother who also was working as a software engineer. So I kind of started teaching myself on my own, had a pretty, I'd say, pretty competent expert give me pointers for when I hit a place I needed some extra guidance on. So I just kind of over time worked on teaching myself with small projects, um, like continuing a project from that game design class where I met the other members of the team, but mostly just sort of immersing myself in the in the work and just getting used to it. I mean, that's kind of the indie approach, isn't it? It's just teaching yourself, learning by doing, and and here you are now, lead developer of your own indie studio. Yeah, I, I think that's how a lot of people get to where they are, that there's not that many kind of rules in place or exact best practices just yet of how you're supposed to learn this stuff. And programming, I think, has become, especially with engines like Unity and Unreal, like that side of game development has gone approachable enough that you can kind of just do it on your own. It, like when I was growing up, I, I actually never thought I would be doing this because I thought this was some insane thing that like you need whole teams of hundreds of people with hundreds and hundreds of hours of work figuring out how to make it all run to, to do and not just something you sort of piece together on your own and that has some pros and cons i think with anything that's self-taught like that you get moments where people's sort of skill sets aren't uh aren't quite as full featured maybe as as <laughs> those in like full-time or like more traditional means of educating themselves on that Sure. Yeah, that was kind of going to be my next question is, you're saying it's so, you know, accessible now, and, and you're absolutely right. But that's, is that always a positive thing? Are there negatives that come along with that? And you kind of touched on that with the fact that not everybody is always, uh, always comes with the full toolkit, if like, kind of as we were saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's one that I feel like as like a career trajectory kind of thing, I've kind of struggled and learned, learned with it. I feel like I've gotten to a pretty good place by now. But there are lots of sort of small, subtle pitfalls of, um, because it's so easy, maybe it, you there's 10 different ways of solving a problem and only one of them is actually like the optimal way and the other ones introduce bugs or aren't don't perform as well. And so it's very easy for like people in the indie scene, um, both myself having in the past on this and other people I know, like finding solutions and just figuring out as you go. But then you sort of slowly paint yourself not into a corner because it's always a problem you can solve, but it's one of those things that because these teams and these projects get created more organically, I think they um, they wind a bit and you sort of learn as you go of how best to 
to operate on them, I guess. Okay. No, and that makes sense. Are there any stories that come to your mind when I ask you to tell me about, you know, one of the things that you've struggled with the most or, you know, a mistake that you maybe really had to fix, you know, this, uh, something that you you struggled with? Mm, probably the most the most immediate one I can think of would be at the tail end of working on our last game, Planet Diver. That was sort of our first full, or at least my first full official release to a store and all that other stuff. Like I've been, I've been working with Fabraz before that, but more with QA and advising, not actually doing the development core itself. Okay. And as is often the case with this game stuff, we were deep in crunch, and it's the kind of thing of just you start working longer and longer hours, and um, just getting like you eat, sleep, and breathe the project. The sort of moment that stood out to me was, as often happened at this period, you're dealing with all kinds of problems, just trying to work out bugs or improve performance to make sure that like the game is mostly done, but you're just trying to finish it and make sure it performs and operates as well as it can. And I was dealing with some kind of problem that, like, um, because it's randomly generated, there's this whole element of you creating content as the game runs, and that runs into performance issues. And it was the, I was dealing with a problem that I was just sort of beating my head against for probably hours, and... The, I eventually just sort of stopped, took a break, walked, and just sort of stopped thinking about it and just got some clarity. And after coming back from that, I just sort of had some time to breathe and figured out an, another solution that just solved the problem. And I don't know, it was just one of those moments that showed to me that I know a lot, like, crunch is a really big issue with this kind of industry. And it's one that we ourselves kind of enforce, but sometimes the best solution is just sort of getting some space to get some perspective a better solution presents itself. I think that's true for a lot of people, isn't it? That, you know, you, you can't necessarily force your way through a problem every time and that sometimes stepping back and taking a minute and then getting a new perspective is, is probably an effective way to go. I know at least for me personally, that that is usually a good approach when I'm struggling with something. Oh, absolutely. And it's one yeah. that like, yeah, it, it's one I, I always recommend to people when I hear them going through that process just because it seems in the moment that the best thing is just to stick at it and just sort of double down and dig in and solve the problem that way. But often you just start too close to the situation. It, it helps just to get some distance. Sure. What's a moment that you're most proud of that you know, you, you've had the opportunity to experience in your time with Fabris? Probably the one I kind of... It's not so much a single moment, but just generally whenever we go to conferences and actually seeing people play our games, um, sounds a little cheesy, but that's the one that I kind of look back at as my like singular positive experiences with this. Because um, like, I, I kind of alluded to this before in the last answer, but often when working on these games, you're so in the middle of it and so invested that it can be hard to get that kind of separation or distance and get perspective, and that might before I was talking about solving problems, but here might just be looking like wholly at the thing you're making. And those moments of seeing other people play the game, especially like watching like some eight, eight year old boy or girl playing the game and accidentally bring a parent over, that to me is like when I can, I'm forced to step back and be like, wow, people are really enjoying this. This is actually awesome. I'm, this is, feels great. I, I gotta ask you a little bit more about that because that's a feeling I've never experienced is kind of, you know, creating a project or a game like that and then watching people 
play it for the first time and watching people experience it for the first time, what's going through your head as you're standing there and, and, and you're watching them? What, what are you thinking? Um, initially, probably terror. There's a little <laughs> bit of like performance, especially the first time you're showing the game because playtesting is an essential part of you know game design throughout the entire process. But it's also one that changes a lot over the course of a project so that the very first time you're showing off a game and just giving it to a random person to just try and playing, it's this nerve-wracking, terrifying moment of a couple things sort of colliding. One is, this is not the final version of the game that we ourselves know. Like, we're putting the game out there to get a reaction, a reception, see how people like it, but especially early on, there's always going to be a divide between, like, what is actually in the game and what we're already trying to implement, so that, for one, we'll be getting feedback that we might already know. Because it's like, yeah, we know we need to add like this dash or something to, to or revise this level, but we still need the, to keep the process going. But then, as it gets further into the into the project's lifespan, that you get to, I think, get a sense of what is working and that feeling of terror of like people are just going to like rip it apart. You get to step back from it a little bit and anticipate what people are actually enjoying, start to get a sense of what's liked and tweaking it. So it's sort of overall like it's a little nerve wracking, but over the as you get further into the project, you get a better sense of how to cultivate the best parts of it that people sort of bring to the front when they play it early on. Fair enough. Are are you working on some exciting secret next projects now that you can't tell me about? I feel like saying yes or no that would then inherently tip the hand there. <laughs> Something, yeah. yeah. I kind of uh, asked that in a roundabout <laughs> way. Yeah. So we. The short answer is yes, we can't go into super many details on it, but we're sort of balancing right now, both doing the aforementioned support for Slimeson, where like we've been doing the console ports and also additional content stuff. But yeah, we're also currently sort of sketching out ideas for new potential prototypes. We have a couple ideas in the works and are sort of slowly building out the aesthetic or design docs for those those ideas. Sure, fair enough. Uh, as as you always should be, right? You always got to be working on the next thing, figuring out the next project, and, and moving forward. So yeah, that's just fun. I mean, that's the, the the I guess the the childish part of this is like when you boil it down, we are just making games that we want to enjoy playing. So it's it's sometimes hard not to have already like five different ideas of what you want to try out next time, like next when you get the time for it. The real tough part is making sure you actually finish the first idea. Yeah, uh, and that's something people struggle with a lot, but I think sometimes, um, and what you said is so important, that's why I'm focusing on it a little bit, is sometimes we get so caught up in the business of video games or in the the project of video games that we forget about the fun of making video games, and I'm happy to hear that you're having fun. Yeah, I mean, it's, a I think, important one to to keep in mind. It's not always fun, especially near the end of a project lifespan, there's sort of a shift that goes on where you're you're doing less and less, t- spending less and less time working on a mechanic or designing a level or like polishing that first layer of player, player experience, but you're instead dealing with like solving bugs, which is important, or like dealing with platform integration, that kind of thing. And it's still incredibly important, but has less of that immediate appeal of like, what I described before is somehow like some parts of working games feels like playing a game. We've reached the end of the episode. Uh, at the end of the episode, I do have to ask you what I ask all of my guests, which is to maybe share 
a final piece of advice. So something that's been true for you or has resonated with you, uh, something that you've utilized recently to overcome an obstacle or something, something to send people home with today who, you know, maybe are stuck with their own projects or are still new and, and are ready to dive in or are experienced and just could use a little insight. What do you have to send people home with today? It's a little like what I mentioned about like how my sort of trick I learned early on for like or not trick really for, for solving or dealing with those kind of hard to think through problems that you're too close to you like taking a walk the other one I often do even more so now is just depending on what I'm working on see if I can formulate that in just literally a different medium like um, whether it's tackling it through writing or just like Exploring the issue in a different medium, even if that's simply writing it out freehand instead of just as a piece of code, just something to change the perspective of the problem you're tackling and see if that brings to light new solutions. That's Ben from Fabraz. You can follow Fabraz on Twitter at F-A-B-R-A-Z-Z, and you can find Ben on Twitter at Strange Bloops. And of course, you can find the company at Fabraz.com. That's F-A-B-R-A-Z.com. And that's it for week one on the road to play NYC. Of course, everyone I spoke with is extremely excited about going to play NYC, and almost all of them have had a hand in the planning of the convention. Lawrence and Ben spoke to me at length about some of the work they've been doing in preparation for the convention. Ben semi-secretly hopes that the convention can one day compete with the PAX convention nearby in his hometown of Boston. Nick is actually going to be a speaker at Play NYC, so if you were as into his ideas on design and storytelling as I was, I highly recommend you check it out. Plus, Come Out and Play will be on the roof of the building, showcasing some games you're unlikely to find anywhere else. And Becky is thrilled to be showcasing Dream Sale's first VR game at the convention, so if you're on one of the multiple floors in the venue, be sure to check it out. If you have thoughts or questions you'd like to share, don't hesitate to send me an email at logan at blackshellmedia.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Logan A. Schultz. That's S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. Additionally, Indie Insider is now officially on Twitter, so you can find us at Indie underscore Insider. And you can find us on Instagram under the name Indie Insider as well. Finally, special thanks to Raghav, Daniel, Raquel, Jen, and Dorian over at Blackshell Media. Dan from Playcrafting, and our guests Nick, Becky, Lawrence, and Ben. All the music in this episode is courtesy of Purple Planet Music. Make sure you join us again here next week for the second installment of Indie Insider Presents, The Road to Play NYC. I'll see you then.